Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today, we have the great honor of Dr. Christopher Kaiba joining us. He is a physicist at the GFZ German Research Center for Geosciences and the, this is a tough German word, Ruhr University in Bochum. He has worked on quantification of artificial light in the outdoor environment for over a decade using ground, air, and space-based techniques, as well as citizen science. He obtained his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2006 and his BSc from the University of Alberta in 2000. He does have a mastodon and a Twitter, SkyGlobe Berlin, and then SkyGlobe Berlin at vis.social. Got a website. It'll all be on the uh, restoringdarkness.com uh, webpage, so if you go there, you can click it. But folks, before we start our conversation with, with Dr. Kaiba, I want to tell you about, a little bit about the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Um, you know, we just launched in June, and we're creating educational programs for uh, lighting, frontline, what we call frontline lighting practitioners. Um, we are doing awareness creation through the Restoring Darkness podcast. We want to fund research. And most importantly, we want to help out the volunteers and the good folks on the ground in lighting ordinance battles to preserve night and to restore darkness. If you go to the restoringdarkness.com website right now, you can click the donate link, uh, link and you can donate directly to the foundation. Why not become a monthly donor? Um, or you can help out the good folks in Utah. Save Wasatch back dark skies. Yeah, they have an ordinance battle coming up. And they want to preserve night. And Wasatch Back is the other side of the mountains from Salt Lake City. So Wasatch Front would be Salt Lake City. Wasatch Back is a beautiful, pristine environment. And there's a volunteer group there called Save Wasatch Back Dark Skies, and they need your help. So if you want to um, donate directly to them, you can click Campaigns on the website. And all of the money will go to the good folks that Save Wasatch Back Dark Skies. And the Letting and Darkness Foundation will match each donation dollar for dollar up to 3500 bucks. Before I get to Dr. Kaiba, I also want to fa- thank our corporate sponsor, Evluma. If you're a corporation and you're looking to um, help out with this movement and this issue, why not become a corporate sponsor of the Restoring Darkness podcast like Evluma, the magicians. They were one of the first companies we ever, we've ever seen to put a dark sky section on their website. So you go to Vluman.com, E-V-L-U-M-A.com, click the Dark Sky section, you see all sorts of wonderful products that help out with this movement. Thank you, folks. Dr. Kaiba, welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Hello. I'm still figuring out my talk track. Yeah, I'm still figuring out my talk track for all this. I've never asked people to donate before, so I'm I'm trying to get better at it, Dr. Kaiba. Um, I just want to go straight into it because... You're one of the world's renowned experts in this topic. Do we have a metric to measure light pollution in SkyGlow that we've all agreed upon? Uh, that we'd all agree that we've all agreed upon, I would say probably no. Um, there's difficulty here, intrinsic difficulty in the problem, several intrinsic difficulties. The one is that instruments are simply different from human beings. We know, you know already from uh, discussions uh, in lighting that the issue of whether you're lighting for a photopic situation or scotopic situation uh, 
is fraught. <laughs> I could say mm -hmm. that. Sure. Uh, it changes very much what the results are. And the same thing is going to happen with SkyGlow. Um, so an instrument might look up at the sky, and even if you have multiple cha spectral channels, say that you see uh, a decrease, a large decrease in the amount of red light in the atmosphere and a small increase in the amount of blue light in the atmosphere. The question is, did that get worse or did it get better? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, you know, it's going to be because of this shift from scotopic to photopic, the answer even for a human observer is going to depend, are you in a relatively bright place or a relatively dark place? So there's no mm. simple answer there. Uh, of course, we can measure it in SI units, uh, specify the spectral band. You can measure how much light is there. That's standard enough. But another thing that comes up in particular with SkyGlow is that you have different sky conditions every night. There's a different amount of aerosols, uh, whether mm -hmm. you have clouds, the moon is coming up and going down. And, and you have, in it, if you're talking about a, a really pristine area, you have variable uh, airglow from night to night and the, the Milky Way crossing over the sky. Mm. So it's not a simple problem. And when you talk about light pollution more generally, for example, if you want to talk about the ecological consequences of light pollution, then you're really in a, in a complicated place because if you add an additional light to Central Park in New York City, it's not gonna do very much probably. Actually, Central Park's a bad example, but say like uh, right inside of the city somewhere, Times Square, you put another light sure. there, the, the marginal impact of that on ecology is very small. If you go into staying in New York, into upstate New York somewhere, um, an area that is, uh, has got no lights around it for 10 kilometers or something, and you install the identical light there, the ecological impact is going to be a lot larger. And that makes it very situation dependent and it's different than, you know, if you're trying to figure out lead exposure or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter where the lead came from necessarily so much. Um, in terms of, you know, what's your occupational hazard or that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the impact of, of light is very local and um, there's many different possible uh, impacts. And so in, in that sense, uh, I don't think there ever will be a single metric that describes this is how much light pollution there is. But of course, we can measure in SI units and understand at least uh, in certain bands what's going on, how much light is there. The It's interesting because we had a, a like an opposite conversation on the board of the Lighting and Darkness Foundation when we were forming it a couple months ago. And the, it surrounded exactly what you said about New York City. Like, who cares if we put up another light in Toronto or New York City or Baltimore or whatever? It, it's not going to, the, the impact is, is, you know, largely meaningless. Um, and so we had a very long discussion about this and we talked about two separate concepts. One, restoring darkness to our light polluted environments. Very complicated, needs a lot of research. We need to understand the relationship between sa human safety and electric light better. We need to see, you know, different policing. We need to have a whole bunch of stakeholders decide and all that sort of stuff. But what we found was a lot simpler was the idea of preserving night where it exists. And that's a lot, a, a lot simpler idea of where if you have a pristine environment like Wasatch back, the Wasatch County, um, it's very simple to say no uplight. It's very simple to not allow the light pollution to start to happen in the first place. Once it's already there, to disentangle it is very difficult because people become attached to that light. They, be, they want it. They makes it, them feel safe. But if we don't, if we start off in these pristine environments and we don't 
pollute with light in the first place and we have strong lighting ordinances, I think that's a, lot, a much simpler concept for the lighting industry to understand in terms of frontline lighting practitioners. I think there's some merit to that, certainly. Um, it, it certainly makes sense to, when you have a place that hasn't been lit for years and years, to, if a new development wants to come in, look very, very critically at what their plan is. That, that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, uh, the, the light in the city is true. Each individual marginal light, you're not going to measure what it does, but they add up. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, a, a problem that's probably familiar to people that are working in, in really urban areas is that there's sort of this, this ratchet effect, right? So if you want to light a gas station canopy, for example, um, and you want to be brighter than the gas station that's across the street, you amp, amp it up, make it brighter, and they want to get brighter than you, they raise it again, right? And and. Mm -hmm. The action of that one individual business doesn't necessarily do very much to the place that's 15 kilometers or 20 kilometers outside of town. But when you have all these different actors who are all ratcheting in the same way, that does have an impact over the long term. And so I think that, that one of the things that, that we have to see happening as well is that in the cities, we, um, we return the focus to vision and uh, lighting for vision. I think another area where, where people should really be, it's surprising to me that you don't hear more discussion about it, but I think it's partly because people just take lighting for granted. Um, there are a lot of people who talk about a climate catastrophe and who feel very passionate about climate change. Um, that is a place where, you know, reducing the total number of, of lumens uh, is going to reduce the energy consumption. Um, the surprising thing is that, you know, I personally, at least from what I've witnessed, I haven't seen Fridays for Future clamoring for better lighting. And I think to a large extent, it's because, well, two things. The one is that we take lighting for granted. The second is that we're all sleeping through a large portion mm -hmm. of the time when the city's lit. And it doesn't occur to you that there's actually an issue here with the way that we're doing, in a lot of cases, dusk till dawn lighting. In, in applications that don't necessarily need it. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, to sum that up, I, I think that we have to, the the people working in this space, so yourself, uh, researchers, um, the awareness creation um, side of it and the public outreach has to insist that light pollution is pollution. And I think that um, right now it's seen as a metaphor, Dr. Kaiba, where you know, oh, we're talking about using too much light. It's it's not really pollution. It's just a metaphor uh, to make people understand it better. And and actually, no, that's not true. That might have been true 30 years ago when we didn't understand the issue that well. But now we know that there's a myriad of environmental impacts from light pollution. You know, maybe the most one that would be the most effective is to say, hey, this is the number you want to you want to help climate change. This is the number one place to continue to mitigate energy consumption is with, um, you know, making the focus of electric light at night, um, change it away from energy efficiency and towards darkness restoration for that area. And that will give you the ultimate light level energy efficiency that would be appropriate. It's like the way we look at it is wrong. They're trying to, the lighting industry is trying to make the most efficient light fixture as possible, but they find themselves, Dr. Kaiba, in uh, Javon's paradox, right? So as soon as they make the fixture efficient, they start using higher and higher wattages of fixtures. And so you get more and more light pollution, even as the fixtures are better and better at, 
uh, at efficiency and, re- and we have the technology is all there, but we were stuck in this trap. So how do we convince the environmentalists first? They're the ones we need to convince first that light pollution is pollution and it's the number one way right now to mitigate climate change. How can we do that? <laughs> so, so just to come back first on, onto that point you made about Jevons paradox, I, I think there's a similar thing that you see and, and this comes about in a lot of uh, green regulation um, for example, the uh, green public procurement rules for street lighting in, in uh, Europe or the CIE rules about how bright signs are supposed to be. IES has similar rules. They don't tell you how many signs you can have or how big they can be, or mm-hmm. how many street lights you can have, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the green procurement requires you that you buy this particular product, but it doesn't tell you, yeah, but you know, you really shouldn't be lighting next to this uh, to this park and river on a on a stretch of roadway where there's you know one car every two hours. Um, so, you know, obviously, for those products, it makes sense to uh, to address the issue of efficiency. But when you want to come down to light pollution and energy in total, what matters is the total light and the total energy, not the fixtures. Um, but to come back to your point about the environmentalists. Um, it is an area where I think a lot of people, again, are just really unaware. So, so one thing that I think people don't uh, often know is that uh, most birds, even the ones that are day active, tend to migrate at night mm-hmm. because the air is more still. Um, it's an easier environment for them to travel in and they have the stars to navigate. Uh, this makes migrating birds extremely susceptible to light. Um, and especially to lit facades. So there are solutions to that. For example, the U.S. Audubon Society uh, having their Lights Out campaign that for a couple of months a year, um, you turn off lit facades, and that addresses the problem. Another one where I am am continuously astounded every year is the story of mayflies and bridges. So you have these situations where so because the bridge is illuminated, so many mayflies assemble that and, and die on the bridge, that the bridge becomes slippery and you have uh, motorcyclists, especially wiping mm-hmm. out, they sometimes have collisions with trucks and things. And the solution to this is just so simple. It's like a, a two day solution, just turn off the lights for two days. I mean, I, I personally come at it, you know, coming from the European, the German perspective, Bridges here generally aren't illuminated. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm sort of like, why, why is the bridge illuminated to begin with? Um, but fine, if you're going to have the illumination and you have a river or stream that has a lot of mayflies, turn it off for that like one week period and you've solved that environmental problem. Um, but it's so hard somehow for people to even come to terms with the idea that, that turning off the light for a short period could be possible. It's, so. you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, you, you, the, uh, it, this, this concept of light pollution as beautiful. So, you know, we, we're, our brains are kind of wired to, in a way to see, you know, Christ is the light of the world. For example, he brings the light into the darkness. There's all this archetypal history of, light being at night being very important and uh, giving us a sense of safety and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I see it this way. Light pollution starts started off as beautiful. 
right? Everybody loves, I mean, going down the Seine River and seeing the Eiffel Tower. That's a nice experience at night. It looks very, very beautiful. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've done it. But there's a point at which it starts to become conspicuous and then obscene and then grotesque. And so I think we need to, we need to, like, a whole bunch of dead birds around the Luxor in Las Vegas or around the, um, the uh, September 11th monument, thousands of dead birds. There's something grotesque about that, actually. And then, you know, with the, the Wasatch County, this, you know, the, the idea that, you know, it's a Mormon temple. They've, they want to uplight the Mormon temple because that's where heaven and earth meet and all that sort of stuff. So you're, you're going to create a place where heaven and earth meet by blotting out the heavens. Like a lot of this stuff is, you know, there's an awkward gro- obscenity and grotesqueness to it that I think we're not doing a good enough job pointing out, you know, and I think we should just say it. Um, and the lighting industry, you know, uh, from the lighting industry side, they always want to find a solution to compromise because there's no money in just saying no light, right? I, I, I hate to say that, but it, there's, there's almost like a point at which we have to become the lighting and darkness industry, which is why the, we named the foundation that, right? Because we have to start seeing darkness provision, providing darkness as valuable as something that we don't want to conquer it. We want to bring it back and allow it back into our lives. And so the idea that it's grotesque, for sure, to you, it's grotesque. This mayfly thing with the bridges and people dying, it's such a simple solution. But for some reason, we don't see that. And I don't know why, Dr. Kaiba. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't quite understand it either. Another place that's that's similar um, is the lighting of historic buildings. Now, in Europe, there, especially Germany, there's a very strong tradition of protecting public buildings, not public buildings, historical buildings. You cannot make any alteration that would change the exterior appearance of the building. But at nighttime, we accept to light it, illuminate it in a way that is completely ahistorical, right? So sure. there's something that uh, we wouldn't accept painting it red, but we accept in bathing it in red light, for example, mm, right? Sure. Um, so that's that's a little odd. The other thing that I think that the, the perspective has sort of been lost a little bit is that uh, going back to the example of illuminated bridges, not for safety, but for, for architectural reasons, the reason that you want to do something like that is to create an experience. Um, the thing is, when you light something every day of the year, it by definition becomes every day. Mm-hmm. And so it's no longer an experience. So when you had like, you know, say, I think Lyon was one of the first to have a big light festival, right? This was a thing, you know, people go there to see this, to experience it. Um, and when you first start to do things with lighting in cities, people will go there to experience it. But as every city starts to have everything lit all the time with lights everywhere, it loses any ability to make us stop and look at it. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to combat that is to actually turn it off most of the time and turn it on for special occasions. So for bridges, for example, a, a possible solution would be that they're off for 55 minutes out of the every hour. And then for five minutes, they're illuminated. And then you have a reason to gather at an overview, looking at the bridge at a certain time, you'll have different people who don't know each other coming together to see this thing. So it could be, you know, like on the hour or whatever, it could be maybe we say Friday and Saturday nights, it's illuminated for church, maybe Sundays and feast days sure. are the appropriate day to illuminate something like that. Uh, and so this is a different model 
about thinking of it. So the city of Potsdam, where I used to live, that was a really good example because their historic buildings are uh, almost all not illuminated throughout the whole year, except on a specific week when they illuminate a lot of the architectural buildings. And then you bring people out to look at them and to appreciate them in a way that when you're on the bus or in your car or even just walking down the street uh, on your usual route and the church is just illuminated the way it always is, you don't look at it, right? There's no reason to experience that. Whereas if it was only illuminated occasionally, it would become an experience again, like it was when it was first illuminated. The you're Canadian, so you would know who Marshall McLuhan is, right? Um, you know, and one of the the medium is the message, folks. That's his. You could contemplate that line for a thousand years. But there's another one that he said. I, I'm I'm going to paraphrase it because I I don't remember exactly. But first we shape technology, then technology shapes us. There's an you know this is so true with phones and technology, but it's also very true for electric light. This idea that what you're talking about is that once we create this experience, then we expect this experience. And in the darkness news update that we do every week here on the show a couple of weeks ago, people were confused because every cause was trying to get this one bridge in Edmonton to light it their color. And they couldn't figure out whether if it was for gay pride for the Minnesota Vikings or like, who's the purple for, you know what I mean? It got so ridiculous that nobody even knew what the bridge was being lit for anymore. And so many people were crowding in, wanting to have it lit for them that every day of the year it became lit and nobody even knew what it was for anymore. We lost the perspective. And, you know, I, I, I certainly, I think this idea of holding back or limiting the amount to certain numbers of days, there's no, there's no reason we can't do this. We have the technology. The technology exists. Um, and it can be retrofitted in too. It's not like we you know, have to replace everything. Um, but again, the, it, there's a, there needs to be something that dawns with light pollution in, in people's minds that it's actually a symbol of human excess. It's a, it's probably the best if environmental symbol to have would be if we made South Korea look like North Korea, like that would be the goal. You know, you have the famous map of capitalism is so wonderful. Look, North Korea has no light pollution. It's like, oh no, wrong way to think about it. <laughs> well, it's... There's an interesting point about that that particular example, and not meaning North Korea, South Korea, but the examples of looking at that satellite image from the VIRS uh, day-night band is the name of the instrument that takes it. So VIRS takes an image every single night of the entire Earth, um, but it does it at about 1.30 in the morning. And if you're in, if you're in uh, daylight savings time, it's like 2.30 in the morning. So my colleague Kong, Kai Pong Tong uh, told me one time, he said, you know, since everybody is sleeping, it really is an image of light pollution <laughs> and not of like useful light, right? If it was at if it was at nine in the evening or eight in the evening, you would say, okay, this is this is light that we're all using. But actually, it's taken at a moment when uh, the vast majority of human beings, even in supposedly twenty four seven cities, are sleeping. Um, and so it 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 is a map. And what you would like to see going forward, if what would what would be the measure of success? would be to see that these places that currently don't have illumination, right? Countries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, North Korea, for that example, they will become brighter. Um, and that's because there are still a lot of people in the world that don't have access to electricity, don't have access to electric light. And nobody should be stopping them from, from getting that, obviously. At the same time, what you would hope to see is that developed places in these sorts of images, particularly late at night, uh, start to become darker as we invest in effective lighting strategies. 
right? So what you should see is sort of a homogenation around the world that not all, but some of the darker places become brighter and many of the bright places become darker and the, the per capita light emissions start to even out a little more. That would, that would be how I would see success. <laughs> you can't see carbon dioxide, but you can see light pollution. And, you know, it, it's a great, if we could, it, you know, if we could help people understand that it's actually a better symbol of environmental awareness than climate change or electric cars or these types of things, a better symbol is really reducing light pollution. Let's talk a little bit about crime. There's, there's, Go ahead. There's on that. I just got to mention it really briefly. Um, the president of an environmental organization, I'm not going to say which one, uh, tweeted several years ago this image of uh, Los Angeles when he was landing on the airplane. And he said, you know, look at this. Imagine if all those lights were powered by clean energy, right? And you're just sort of like, dude, there's like 2,000 unshielded lights in your image, right? Mm -hmm. You know, imagine if those were all well shielded and and were not contributing to um, this environmental problem. And it was not a it was not a climate organization. It was one that was about uh, protecting um, animals. And so just sort of like, well, I really missed the mark there. Anyway, come come to crime and safety. Sure. So, you know, um, while, uh, you know, there is research and there's competing research, actually, and I don't think we totally know the answer, the relationship between electric light and human safety. What I, what I know is this, is that lights neither cause crime or prevent crime in and of themselves. So the idea that, that lights stop crime, I don't think crime is a lighting problem. I think it's a different problem. And, you know, uh, I, fundamentally, that, I don't think people can argue with me about that. If I, you know, the reason why people commit crimes has nothing to do with whether the streets are lit or not. Now, it may change the type of crime that happens. We know that some crimes are more likely in this kind of scenario and other crimes are more likely in this. Like robbing a car, say, of a laptop is more likely in a highly lit environment than it is in a lower lit environment. So the light pollution can, can cause, laptop. Exactly. Yeah, can cause yeah. more crime than it solves. But the idea of the, the relationship that the average citizen that's not involved in the lighting industry has no exposure to the Restoring Darkness podcast, your research or anything like that, they will always advocate for brighter lights and they will always see the solution to safety as more lighting, lawyers, insurance companies, everything else. They want, you know, if there's something went wrong, we don't have enough light. Um, how can we defeat that? failed axiomatic uh, presupposition with research? Can we defeat it with research or is there something more that has to happen? I, I think, uh, I think absolutely. I mean, there, there already is a lot of research that demonstrates that the relationship between crime and light is uh, weak to non-existent, right? So one of my very favorite examples of this was done in Chicago. Um, they have a record of when people reported that a light was burned out. Mm -hmm. and uh, they have the date at which the crew got there and repaired it. And the Chicago police take really accurate uh, observations of where crimes occur. For example, you know, where exactly was the car broken into or, or where was the car you know, stolen or whatever? Uh, where was the person mugged? They know the locations. So what these researchers did is they said, okay, this is great. You have a time series where you know the light burned out, you know it was off for a certain amount of time and you know which day it came back on so you can look at the days before the light went out and the time when the light you know was out and the days after the light came back on again and if this was a simple thing for example if you had the idea that people rob cars 
when they're standing in darkness, um, then this should appear. It should be a really strong signal. And what they found is, is basically no relationship at all. In fact, they, they, they claim that when the lights go out, the, the robbers go over to the next street uh, where there's more light and, and do crime there, which strikes me as fairly implausible. It's, it's a really minor effect and it's most likely, I think, a statistical um, variation that caused that because caused it's very hard for me to imagine that someone who is thinking of robbing somebody uh, says, oh my, the lights are, there's a, there's a street light burned out of this light. So I'm going to go over one street over and rob somewhere on, on the street where there's no street lights burned out. That just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that happened with regard to light and safety in the last year was the energy crisis in Europe that was caused by Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of places made rules about turning lights off. So for example, in Germany, there was some rules about sign illumination. I don't know if there was any enforcement, so I, I don't actually know how many signs actually turned off. Um, but, but uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of um, tabloid media was very concerned about this idea and predicted there was going to be total chaos in the city centers mm -hmm. because can't turn lights off, right? Now, I think we're still waiting on getting, you know, statistical results to come in. But if there had been a sudden wave in crime that had been associated with turning lights off, that would have been all, all over, over the, the news. news. Yeah, for sure. And the same the same thing happened in Belgium. They turned off their highway lighting, right? So Germany doesn't pretty much doesn't have high, highway lighting except in specific cases where the, the highways like right inside a city. Um, Belgium has those highways lit up all over the place. Uh, so I've long thought this doesn't make any sense. If you can drive safely in Germany without lights, you know, with your headlights, it must surely be possible to drive in Belgium. But again, parts of Belgium turned off all the highway lighting. And it's the same thing. If there had been a sudden dramatic rise in collisions, there would have been a big outcry about it. And the fact that there was no outcry suggests to me that the impact of that light had on collisions was so small as to be not measurable. Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't actually doing anything. I mean, maybe it changes behaviors, right? I mean, this uh, suspicion that potentially people drive faster when they're in illuminated areas. Um, so well, that this is know, this we, is exactly where I want to go with this. At the same time, raise raise the speeds, maybe see a little better, and and it all comes out in the wash as not having an impact, right? You know, uh, there's two points I want to get to before we leave the topic. The first is I'm going to go to the second one because you brought it up. The light pollution as an accelerator for certain types of bad behavior. Right. I don't think people have ever considered this before. So, for example, I think you're right. I think people drive faster in areas where the, you know, if you if you drive down the 407 highway, I don't know if you've been to Toronto in the last 20 years. I don't know how long you've been out here. So, you know, the 407, beautiful highway, uh, very well maintained road. Uh, you, you know, typically people are driving at 140 kilometers an hour on that highway, 110 miles an hour for our U.S. listeners. Right. And and the cops will let you just go right by them. And as soon as you go over 140, then you get pulled over for doing, you know, 40 over. But that's a whole other argument to talk about. But typically people are driving between 130 and 140 on that highway. The, um, the areas, it, 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 through, as it goes through Vaughan, which is north of Toronto, and through Markham and, and these areas, it is lit up uniformly. You could see for uh, as if it were daylight, you can see so far. Um, and so I, I believe that light pollution is an accelerator of bad behavior. Also, the idea of this riot-based crime, you know, this, this group-based crime. So when, when police officers talk about lighting, you can picture 
the police officer walking up to your vehicle at night, knocking on your window and shining a flashlight on you, right? So now you have a, a contrast. They can see you, you can't see them, right? There's power in that contrast. But if, if a roadway or, or, or a, a area of civilian population is lit up uniformly like that, that advantage is lost. And so I think when policing, police are thinking about that advantage, they're thinking of the prison light idea. You're shining lights on people. You can see them very clearly, but they can't see you. They don't even know if you're there, the prison of the panopticon. When, what we saw with the riots in 2020 um, in the U.S., one thing that struck me is they were happening at night, but you could see everything. You know, particularly with the situation with the, the young fellow Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, I don't know what side of the argument anyone's on. It that makes no difference to me. But what I'm saying is that that's not, a, that's not the type of thing that could have happened in the dark. That's exactly a result of everybody being able to see each other. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's possible, but can a safety study be done where we look at what would have happened had they started to warm those lights and dim them? Over the course of time, would people have left? Would it have cued people to leave? And so I think this uniform high brightness, high Kelvin temperature lighting is doing two things. It's allowing everybody to see where everyone else is. The cops are over there. My group's over here. Kyle Rittenhouse is in the middle of the road over there. He's got his gun pointed the other way so I can go and attack him now. And the second thing is that there's no cue to go home. It doesn't get darker. It stays the same brightness. So if people start to turn off the lights and turn down the lights, it's kind of like a a mental cue, hey, maybe it's time for me to go get in my car or get on the subway and go home because it's getting dark. My mom used to tell me when the street lights come on. Well, now I can't even tell when the street lights come on because it's the same brightness as it was when it was daytime. Um, is there any way we can research the connection as that light pollution is an accelerant of certain kinds of crime? So, I mean, I, I want to kind of stay in my lane here, right? Because I'm mm. a physicist and this is really getting into areas of criminology and, and psychology where I don't have sure. expertise. I do know there's a, there's a German psychologist who claims that, um, for example, uh, warm colored light uh, calms people and this very high temperature white light tends to agitate them. I personally haven't seen um, research published in that area. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but that is very much not my expertise. Um, one thing I do want to come back to in what you were saying is that when we... So I don't have something against uh, uniform illumination. I know there's some people who, who are very... who think that we've overdone it and it's causing problems. Um, but when you have very uniform and quite bright illumination on the street and then in the areas next door uh for example walkways or um or parks that are un that are not directly illuminated they can appear extremely dark mm -hmm. in comparison and this has two effects the one is that when when in the past the lights were not well designed and they shone everywhere people didn't necessarily have to light up their pathway now if the city very narrowly cuts off the, the light onto the street uh, and, and is not illuminating those pathways, uh, they may feel the need to install their own lighting, which um, may not be as carefully designed as the city street lighting because they don't have the resources of a, of a city lighting department, right? So there's one danger there. The other is that when you have this very bright and uniform lighting, and then you go to a park, uh, the experience of, of going into the park can feel like the park is just mm -hmm. black. Um, once you get in the park, you realize, actually, I can see quite well. 
but in that moment of that transition, it's it's problematic. And uh, so again, this comes down to um, we need to figure out somehow how much light do we need for pedestrians and cyclists and and motorists uh, on the different classes of roads. Uh, the uh, the guidelines that exist are consensus based; they're not evidence based, and so there's there's a mm -hmm. potential question there. Could they be potentially uh, much less bright? Um, and how do we deal with these situations of the transition between the illuminated area and the unilluminated area in order to uh, not have such a sharp cutoff and not, not create this, this shift between, between lit and unlit? Um, with regards to the uh, riot policing, I mean, I can't, I can't offer help there. That's so mm. far out of my experience. I do think you're probably right, though, that if, <laughs> if you were to turn off all the lights, uh, uh, many people would uh, feel uncomfortable in that situation, would, would probably want to leave. Uh, one, one last thing related to that is if you think about graffiti, mm -hmm. um, the idea that, that mm -hmm. lights will prevent graffiti is really, is really uh, silly in some sense, because if you, if you can't see what you're doing, if you're gonna need to bring a flashlight um, to, to light things up, it's gonna be harder to, to tag or whatever, right? Sure. Um, it's the other way around. So I think lights actually to, create an opportunity for graffiti. That's what they do. Exactly. The that's, what I, that's what I was trying yeah. to say. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it comes back to the to the thing about the illuminated shop windows. Um, you know, should shop, do shop windows need to be illuminated for uh, avoiding break-ins in the store? Well, if I happen to be walking at one in the morning down the street for whatever reason, and it happened. Well, I'm a light researcher, so I do sure. that kind of thing all the time. Most people don't. Uh, but if I'm walking down the street and the light is on in a shop and there's someone in there walking around, you know, packing things in boxes or whatever, uh, you know, I'm not going to call the police, whatever, someone's working late at night, right? Sure. If on the other hand, I'm walking down the street, all the, all the shop windows are out. And in this one shop window, I see a whole bunch of flashlight beams going around. <laughs> I would find that very suspicious, right? Sure. I'll probably get on the phone and be like, hey, I don't know what's going on, but it looks like H&M has some people using flashlights in it. Maybe their lights are just burned out, but uh, you might want to check that out, sure. right? So in terms of this vigilance uh, of the people on the street for break-ins, again, and it goes the same thing for your neighbor's house, right? If, if you're robbing someone's house <laughs> in the neighborhood, probably the best thing to do is flick the lights on and walk around calmly. Some the people who are around there will probably just think you're a guest. You're walking mm -hmm. around with a flashlight. That's really somehow incriminating. So, uh, so with respect to the vigilance of the people who are on the street, I think that turning lights off in many cases can potentially help uh, in that respect. And you know, just to cap that the safety crime thing off, most crimes are crimes of passion, like violent crimes by people who know each other. So, this idea that you know most people are afraid of people they don't know. But really, we know that most, a lot of violent crime, or at least most of violent crime is done with people, gangsters that know each other or, you know, ex-lovers and these types of things. And so the, the idea that light would stop that is, is not, not really, falls kind of on a, a muddy ground, let's say. Let's get into your research. What's latest from Dr. Kaiba? What are you working on? <laughs> what do you got going on? Yeah, we... We have a bunch of things going on. Um, we're working on a project called uh, Nachtlichter, Night Lights. Um, it's part of a larger project called Nachtlichtbühne, uh, which is uh, Nightlight Stage. It's a citizen science project, so it's got this name Stage because regular people are coming in. It's not just us researchers. Um, 
Within this project, we developed an app for um, classifying sources of light, counting and classifying. So what, what the person does basically is they start at one street corner, and they walk from one street corner to the next one, counting up all the different types of lights they see. So I saw this many street lights, uh, this many lit windows, this many lights on the side of buildings. We developed together with the citizen scientists, we developed 18 categories of, of light sources. And in doing this, we're getting sort of the, I mean, lighting inventories have existed before. Obviously, if someone's going to go in and do a you know, project in a, in a town square or something, they're going to do lighting inventory. But we've, we've done this now on an unprecedented scale. So we covered uh, 22 square kilometers in uh, about 20 or 30 locations, uh, mainly in Germany, but with some international locations as well, where, where we covered always between uh, the minimum size was about uh, 0.15 square kilometers, getting up to over one square kilometer, where we really counted up every single light that was visible from uh, public spaces, so streets, parks, squares, the sort of places you're allowed to go. We didn't go jumping into crawling through people's backyards, <laughs> but we really counted up everything that you could count from, from public spaces. And so, uh, those results will be coming out this fall. One thing I can say, uh, I think is fine is that, uh, certainly in the, in the urban situation, um, streetlights are, are not the primary source of light, at least in terms of the numbers of lights. For every streetlight, there's an illuminated sign, illuminated shop window in our data set. Um, so uh, that's one area that I think that the, that the signs and shop windows are an area that really needs more thinking about. What we're going to do this fall, and so anyone who's listening can, can take part, is we revised the app a little bit, made it a little bit better, improving our training materials. And we're running an experiment to understand how lights change over the course of the night. So the way it will work is you pick whatever street you want. Uh, you no, don't need these huge areas anymore like we did in the first project. And you walk down the street at one time of night, count up all the lights, and you walk down the same street at the same at a, at a later time of night and count up the lights again. And now we can see what turned off. And what we want to do is build up statistics, understand, okay, what fraction of businesses currently are turning off their signs, are turning off their shop windows? Uh, how do the, how, at what time do these different lights turn off? We're also counting up uh, how many people you see on the street. So you do an estimate just when you're starting at the corner of how many people you can see on the street. And you also give us a, a subjective estimate of how lively the street was. What we want to look at is the relationship between um, advertising and how many people are there to see it, hmm. right? So what we expect is that as you go into the later evening, uh, lights do turn off, but the number of people on the street decreases much faster. So if you think about the number of watt hours per view of a, of an advertisement, I think this is a really relevant metric that I've never heard anybody talk about. No, um, I haven't either. It's very interesting. That, that would be that would be really tiny in the early evening, right? If it's six in the evening in the winter and the streets are full of people, you know, a tiny bit of electricity shows your message to a large number of people. Um, between two and three in the morning, there's most likely, you know, almost no one on the street, and so you need to operate that thing for the whole hour in order to get one person to see it. Um, so we're hoping that this will shed, shed a little light, uh, to use the typical pun, on, mm -hmm. on this question of how does the number of people on the street relate to the, to the lights and also to understand better which lights turn off. We also want to look at things like urban to rural differences in mm -hmm. the times at which lights are turning off or the, or the fraction of lights that are turning off. 
And also, I hope that we'll be able to look at comparing Germany to other countries, because we know from the satellite observations that per capita, Germany emits way less light than comparatively wealthy countries. Uh, and so it's sort of a big question mark there, you know, why is that? And one of the possibilities that, that, I've, that I've got thought of is that, well, in Germany, a lot of lights turn off late at night. So for example, on Sunday, stores are closed, so they don't illuminate their parking lot. Um, after the business closes or like an hour after the business closed or something, the parking lot's not going to be illuminated anymore because what would be the point, right? Uh, I think that's not really done in the North American context. Uh, if you have a parking lot, it's just, it's just lit as bright as possible throughout the whole night um, as a standard rule, I would say. And so to, to some extent, I'm curious to see whether we will observe really different practices between Germany and other countries, or maybe it's maybe we don't maybe germany is just like everywhere else and it's something else that causes this big difference so everybody's welcome to take part the project is called nachtwester i guess you can probably put a link to it on the on no. the web page yeah also. for sure the i i'm i'm very interested in this and um it, i i i can't remember if it, if it was karolina zelinska dabkowska or another researcher I'm trying to remember it might have been someone else um that pointed this out to me that Barcelona and Brussels have three times as much light pollution as Berlin, but the same crime rates. There's no difference in the rate of crime <laughs> in most cities. Um, and that the example. Yeah, so go ahead. The, exa the example that I always used was Berlin and Chicago. So uh, I would ask audiences, okay. okay, imagine, imagine you have to go, if you're from the place, you, you have to go to a, a street you don't know, part of the neighborhood, a part of the city that you don't know, and you're going to have to walk for a kilometer at three in the morning uh, down, down the street in a place that's not familiar to you. And you get the choice. You can do that in Berlin or you can do that in Chicago. And like every audience I've ever asked, the vast majority of people say, I would rather do that in Berlin. And then I show the two cities, the satellite view on the same grayscale, right? Where Chicago is incredibly brightly lit and Berlin is, you know, in comparison just looks like it's, it's barely lit at all, right? Hmm. Like, well, your subjective feeling of safety, even if you haven't been to either of those two places, is very strongly affected by uh, the things you've heard about the city. It's not strongly affected by the light in the city, mm -hmm. the objective amount of light in the city. And I've always found this a similar thing about hotels because you often see hotels have really bad lighting sometimes. They have floodlights shining up on the side of the hotel and things. And this gets explained in that, well, you want to attract people to come to your hotel. <laughs> and Honestly, I mean, if I book a hotel in a city I've never been to, I don't look for street lighting, street side views of the lights on the side of the building, right? I go to booking.com or I go yeah, to, sure. you know, uh, some hotel booking website, Google hotels or whatever. And I look at what's in the area I want to be. And I look at uh, how expensive it is. And I have no information before I get there about what lighting is going to be. So I think this idea that hotels need to be illuminated as part of their um, their image. You know, maybe it's still true for prestige hotels. I mean, Las Vegas is a different situation from, you know, for example, uh, outskirts of Toronto, right? Sure. Um, but when you have, when you have like a, a small independent hotel, um, the lighting is just never going to have an influence on, on who stays there, right? That doesn't, mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. Make any difference at all. Um, if you're so... staying at the Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> then you're staying at the Ritz-Carlton. If you're staying at the Holiday Inn Express, you're staying at the Holiday and Express. You know, I don't think the lighting of the external so, building is going to change that. I mean, I, 
So I can see the benefit to them having outside, uh, you know, a sign that's illuminated. Also, you know, hotels, there, there may be people arriving late at night, right? So the sign itself, a hotel is a good example of a place that's open 24 hours. So signs should probably be on. Contrast to that, a grocery store where, you know, in the middle of the night, no one can go shopping there. Uh, so the sign doesn't need to be on, right? There's, there's differences there. And uh, so, you know, I can see there's, there's legitimately reasons for that. But again, lighting, lighting the facade, uh, particularly put to hotels where people are trying to sleep inside, sort of like really counterproductive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, uh, that's totally interesting. I was in New York and the amount of sound and light pollution in your hotel room is absolutely insane. Like it, the you're in Manhattan and it's just constant honking all night long and lights coming in the window. You have to put the curtains across and it doesn't matter where you are. Um, before we close it out, is there any final thoughts you have for the Restoring Darkness listeners, Dr. Kaiba? Um, I think that the last thing I would say is we, we talked a little bit about how people don't notice light. Um, it's been surprising to me in the last while talking to people that are involved in lighting in cities and making lighting transitions to LEDs and things that then they say, well, no, nobody complained. Um, and when the city doesn't hear about your objections or when, you know, a, a business uh, on the, across the street puts up lights that bother you, if you don't say anything, they'll be like, well, nobody complained. Um, when you let people know that you find their lighting objectionable, I think they notice and actually it doesn't even take very many people saying something to be in comparison to the nothing that there is now uh makes mm. a big difference so that would be the one thing i would uh i would suggest and if, if i can just end with a little anecdote for sure um when i was counting lights for the nachtlichter project uh in 2021 I was at this shop, I was standing in front of a shop, and there were two lights. One was coming from the right, one was coming to the left, and they were over this, the, the entrance to the shop. But they didn't illuminate like the ground in front of the shop. They were just shining kind of to the sides. And I stood there for a long time because I was like, somebody, somebody has to have had a reason why they put these lights here. Right? Sure. There, there must have been some, some, something behind that, right? And they're oriented in a certain way, like there's got to be a reason. And finally, after like about five minutes of kind of staring there, walking back and forth, I figured it out. There used to be a different shop or, or whatever. There used to be a sign. And those two lights were to illuminate the sign. Mm. The shop owner maybe changed or something. He took down the sign from the predecessor. But those lights are on some circuit that just turns on in the evening. And the shop owner probably doesn't even realize that they're there. And it was just so emblematic to me of how so much of the lighting that we have is just there without anyone having thought about who is this for. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, going forward, I think the, the, the real key to effective lighting is always who is this lighting for? You know, when are they there and what do they need? And when you ask that question before you install a light, the outcome is going to be a lot better than you just think, okay, we need lights, so we're going to put up some lights. Mm. Well, this is why we've had a lot of discussions at the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, folks, about the difference between darkness restoration for our light-polluted environments versus night preservation where it exists. Legacy light pollution is very difficult to 
to. There's so many different intri- intri- examples of where people don't even know what's going on. They don't even know why the light was there in the first place. There's people that, you know, insurance companies and lawyers and regulations and highway traffic acts and all sorts of different things within these big light polluted environments that make darkness restoration an incremental long-term process that we want to chip away at. We want to work at, we have all the technology we need, but folks, when we're talking about night preservation, that's easy. That's really easy because we have the technology to create excellent lighting systems in these environments and that preserve the night. Um, whether you want to call that dark skies, we don't, we don't really think that term is descriptive of what actions need to be taken, whereas we prefer, prefer the word night preservation or to describe it. But folks, that's a lot easier than darkness restoration. It's going to take us a long time to make South Korea look like North Korea or some semblance of that. Um, but why don't you go to the restoringdarkness.com website right now. You can, you can donate to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, become a monthly donor. Or if you want, you can donate directly to our campaigns. And right now we have Save Wasatch Back Dark Skies. That's right. They're in an ordinance battle in um, Wasatch County, Haber City, in a pristine area of Utah. And they need your help. And the Lighting and Darkness Foundation will match every donation you make up to 3500 bucks for... Uh, and they're going to use it for legal fees, technical support. Think about trying to argue these things technically with uh, the planning commission. And folks, Greg Eric and Michael Colligan are actually going to Utah this Thursday. That's right. I'm going to go there and I'm going to speak to the planning commission about night preservation. So the Letting and Darkness Foundation is going to be on the ground on a regular basis. And if you need help, go to restoringdarkness.com, contact us. We're just getting started up, but we will be there for you if we can, for sure. So go to RestoringDarkness.com. We want to thank Evluma, our only corporate sponsor. If you're a corporation right now, you can sponsor us too, especially if you're in the United States. We're a 501c3. That's a charity. We can issue you a tax-deductible receipt. Go to RestoringDarkness.com. My thanks go to Dr. Kaiba for being on the program. This is the second time I've interviewed him, but it's been a while, and we had a great time. You can find all of his information. Um, What's that? Nachtlichter? Nachtlichter? Did I say it right? Yeah, 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 night lights. Yeah. Nachlichter will be on the website there. Uh, (laughs) Nachlichter. Got to work on that German pronunciation along with all his social media, his websites. Thank you very much, Dr. Kaiba. And folks out there, you guys are the ones making this happen. So thanks to you, listeners. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.